North America's opioid overdose crisis doesn't appear to be abating. In recent years, deaths due to illicit synthetic opioids such as fentanyl have outstripped deaths due to heroin and prescription painkillers. In response, Canada has taken a number of steps to reduce deaths related to fentanyl and other opioids. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Evan Wood, a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia and director of the British Columbia Center on Substance Use. Dr. Wood has written a perspective article about what the United States can learn from Canada's efforts to prevent opioid overdose deaths. Dr. Wood, where has the leadership on these efforts come from in Canada? Have most of these policies and programs been at the national level or in individual provinces? I think there's been leadership from a range of areas. Certainly there's been the community groups that are right in the thick of things, agencies that would traditionally be providing clean needles to prevent the spread of HIV infection have certainly been calling for changes. But we've been fortunate that there's been a lot of leadership from the federal government and also from the provincial government in British Columbia. So it's been, I think, a real recognition that we are in the midst of a crisis and a push from all levels to try and stop people from dying. One step that Canada's taken is facilitating the development of medically supervised injection facilities. So what's been the response from the medical community to that and the response from the general public? Do these spaces get used much? We've had a medically supervised safer injecting facility open in Vancouver, British Columbia since 2010. So it's something that initially was quite controversial. People thought that it might bring problems. And ultimately, what's been observed is that it's reduced the amount of publicly discarded syringes, the reduction in people injecting in public spaces and alleys and places like that in the urban neighborhood where drug use is concentrated. And it's helped facilitate people into addiction treatment. And actually, we had a paper that showed about a 35% reduction in fatal overdose deaths coinciding with that program. So they've rolled out much more extensively in the province now in most urban areas in the province where drug use is concentrated, has supervised injecting programs. And really, those have been accepted by the local community because benefits are seen from them. Another thing that British Columbia has recently done is to provide funding for publicly available anonymous drug testing services, which would allow a drug user to test the contents of drugs before actually using them. So how will those services be provided? And is there evidence that people are going to take advantage of them? That's an intervention that's really in its infancy. As some of your listeners may know, drug testing services have existed historically in Europe and a number of other jurisdictions, particularly for drug users using drugs like MDMA or ecstasy. And essentially now some work that's been done at Johns Hopkins and there's some work happening in Washington, D.C., looking at given the fentanyl contamination of the drug supply, can we help sort of improve consumer safety by allowing people to know what's actually in the drugs that they're intending to use? Locally, with the pilot programs that have been initiated and they're offering testing at some of these supervised injecting programs and also at community agencies, there's been a great deal of uptakes. I think there's a real willingness of drug users to test their drugs. And actually, we have a study that's in development that shows that when people learn that they have fentanyl in their drugs, it does change their behavior and people tend to use less and they're less likely to have an overdose requiring resuscitation. So I think it is a really interesting intervention that We have limits on how we can control the drug supply, and we need to start looking at things that can be done to make it safer. To what extent have the measures that you talk about in your article and that you've just discussed in these few minutes, have they actually been succeeding? Is there any indication that the rate of opioid overdose deaths is going down in Canada? We'd all like a scenario where we had, you know, sort of clinical trials where we could be testing these types of interventions in different communities and being able to really 
measure the impacts in terms of the number of lives saved. And unfortunately, we're just not in a position to be able to do that right now. More observational work. Certainly, we've seen a huge number of deaths prevented from things like naloxone and from some of these other interventions, but things are moving very rapidly, obviously, with the fentanyl contamination of the drug supply and a lot of people still dying. So to be able to say we've seen a change of 20% or 50% hasn't been possible in the present context. You say in your article that one of the limitations of Canada's efforts to address this crisis is that people with opioid use disorder have often been excluded from service delivery planning. So what can be done to involve that population in program design and policymaking of the sort that you're talking about? Yeah, and I think that's really an important observation because if you think of other areas of healthcare, if we were talking about prostate cancer or breast cancer, people and the patients that you're trying to help have a seat at the table to talk about things. And historically, the overwhelming emphasis on drug use has been criminalization. And so you wouldn't have people who use drugs getting a say when police are cuffing people and the overwhelming emphasis is being placed on trying to suppress the drug market. And this is obviously a different era where we have a lot of public health interventions that we're trying to employ. We're trying to develop an addiction treatment system, which does not yet exist in any North American jurisdiction, I would say. We're just really trying to figure out how to make effective and accessible drug treatment a reality. And so for that, I think it's just critical to have the voice of people who are most affected, whether that's the families of someone who's struggling with addiction, as they have a lot of wisdom as well, individuals struggling with addiction, and also individuals in recovery and individuals who've been able to get better and having those voices inform the system. So we have a lot of peer engagement in the work that we're doing in Canada. And that's something that's really new and I think very promising. And finally, what do you think is keeping the United States from enacting the kind of reforms that have been happening in Canada? Do you think the barriers are mostly cultural or legal? I think it's stigma. And I guess that comes down to culture. And in both Canada and the United States, there's been sort of a longstanding war on drugs approach to dealing with illegal drugs and stigmatizing those who use drugs. And obviously, again, the criminal justice approach really being overwhelming. And I think that transition from looking at drug use as a moral and a criminal justice issue and stigmatizing people who have this disease to one where we're looking at as a public health and community wellness type of issue that takes time. And unfortunately for political leaders, there still is votes to be had by promising to get tough on drugs and sort of the criminalization approach that appeals to a lot of people and that stigmatizing. And I think it takes a lot of political leadership. And if I can see any signs of moving on to a different way of thinking, certainly just the number of people who are dying and the families who are affected and families wanting to see a, a different approach that makes treatment accessible and reduces the stigma for individuals and families that are struggling with this disease. And I think we're in such a crisis right now, it probably sadly does create an opportunity for change just because uh, the number of people that are dying in North America because of this crisis. And I think we haven't hit rock bottom yet. Things are going to continue to get worse before they get better. Thank you, Dr. Wood.